Good morning, Centerway Church. I'm Tara. I'm so thankful to be gathering with you online this morning. Welcome to all of you. It's great to see everyone gathering on our Sunday morning live platform, including those in watch parties. And we know that some of you will be watching or listening to this later on in the week. So hello to you. A very special welcome to those of you joining us for the very first time. We know that in this season it may be difficult to visit a church, but we trust that even online you feel at home here. In hopes of making your first visit a little easier, I'm going to run through some information that we share every single week that we trust will help you, our guests, and everyone else know a little bit about what to expect as we gather and how to engage if you're gathered live. The online platform has many options for you. You can share your information with us or update your information. There's also a tab to give, to take next steps, find previous messages, and share this message. You can also request prayer right on the live platform, and one of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening to this message later, you can do those things through our website. If you need prayer throughout the week, if you have questions, ideas, or feedback, we'd love to help you in any way we can. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. We have resources to go along with the message that will help you grow no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey and take you deeper throughout the week. They are found in two main places on our website, the messages page and the next steps page. You'll definitely want to check out our Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals and wallpaper images to remind you of the weekly application question, among other things. Also, if you have kids in your home, we have a message just for them. They learn from the same scripture text that we learn from, which allows for great discussions and growth as a family. One last thing, mark your calendars for Sunday, November 29th. It's our annual One Day to Feed the World offering through Convoy of Hope. The idea is that we're challenged to give just one day's wage to feed and change the lives of so many around the world. There's a link on our homepage to check out the work of Convoy of Hope and also a link to One Day to Feed the World. We get to be a part of life change all over the world and we also encourage your kids to get involved. They obviously don't have jobs, but they can be generous and find creative ways to give. More information on that to come. Now here's what to expect today. Joe will be reading the scripture text for us, Claude will be communicating from the Bible, and then you'll hear some ways to respond in worship. Immediately after the message, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Here's Joe with the text for today. Good morning, Centerway Church. My name is Joe, and I'll be doing the scripture reading this morning. You can follow along with me in the third chapter of Mark, verses 22 through 35. And it reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother 
and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Good morning and welcome. My name is Claude. My wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church and uh, super excited that you have the opportunity to join us as we continue in a series called Disrupted. Disrupted. Uh, The message this morning is actually entitled Family. So Disrupted Family. And we're continuing in a journey through Mark chapter 3. We're actually wrapping up chapter 3 this morning through uh, verses 22 through 35, which you just heard read. Um, When I think of family and disrupted family, maybe you uh, have a humorous family where you can kind of resonate with the idea that uh, this idea of family and disrupted sort of go hand in hand. I know that I have a a family that I grew up in that was um, rather chaotic. Uh, We were very verbal um, in the way that we disagreed with one another in particular. Uh, I remember the first time uh, that my now wife, Meredith, but at the time was a girlfriend, came over and met my family. Of course, everybody was on their best behavior for about five minutes. And then uh, then it just kind of came unraveled. Uh, I have a younger sister that's rather outspoken and um, we're a loud family. And so we're just very verbal. When we disagree with each other, we let one another know that we disagree and uh, we love each other, but we make it known that we disagree. And uh, I probably give countless stories of uh, humorous times that we disagreed loud and directly. Um, But I remember when I first started uh, dating Meredith, I remember being hesitant about some of those disagreements. And if maybe you're dating someone right now, or uh, maybe you're married or whatever, you know what I'm talking about with this idea where you care for someone, but you disagree with them. And in the early uh, years or in the early days of those relationships, uh, it's funny how those disagreements look and then how they look differently as you get more and more comfortable, most people would say. I think it's different than that, though. I think it's more than comfortability. I think there's something to the fact that as you get to know one another, you're actually growing in a deeper love relationship. And so as a result, um, you're more willing to kind of speak out and be more direct about what it is that you agree with or disagree with. I mean, in the early days of our relationship, it was like, oh, I don't, I don't really care for that. Oh my gosh, but I'll eat it anyway, right? Oh, I don't, I don't really like to be scared, Claude, but it's kind of cute when you scare me. Oh no, I'm scared, right? Fast forward to like, now we're dating and I'm like, boo, she's like, not funny. Then we're married. She's like, Claude, knock it off. I'm not joking around. Do not scare me. Then she started hitting me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's funny how the room here is trying to control themselves as I just make absolute ridiculous things up. Um, But the fact is, you know, when you are uncomfortable and you don't really know someone very well, you're sort of reserved in what it is that you're willing to disagree with, unless what you disagree about is of really big importance to you. And even then you kind of can candy coat it or you're cautious of how you communicate that. The more you get comfortable, the more you realize that you're loved, that you're in a loving relationships, the more comfortable you are kind of speaking your mind. And hence the family I grew up in, kind of willing to speak their mind to one another, sometimes even to the 
uncomfortability of others in the room. And so now, obviously, a disagreement between me and Meredith looks a lot different than it looked like in our early days. Now, we still, of course, lovingly disagree, but you know what I'm talking about. It's different. It's different how it is you disagree when you're in a loving relationship with someone. And so the question I want us to ask and consider is, why is it so easy to disagree with those we love the most? Why is it so easy to disagree with those we love the most? I think there's a basic assumption with this question that I kind of need to get out in the open. The assumption is that the loving relationship is a healthy one. Okay. Now, otherwise, obviously the answers can go very dark and even abusive. And, um, I think obviously that makes sense to all of us, right? So I'm talking about a healthy, loving relationship. So in healthy relationships as humans, not as Christians, but as human beings, why is it so easy to disagree with those we love the most? I've kind of alluded to it already a little bit. I want to submit to you that the answer lies in the fact that we love them. Now, you see, there's a safety and even a unity in healthy relationships that allows truth to be spoken in love, right? We've talked about that before here, how it's not just truth unapologetically, like deal with it, here's the truth. And it's also not like, I love you so much, I'm not going to disagree. But it's both and. It's the truth in love. I love you enough to speak the truth. And I want you to know the truth. So I'm going to say it in a loving way. Now, remember, I said a healthy relationship. Now, we can, uh, we can disagree because we're in this together. That's kind of how loving relationships take place, right? We're on the same team. We're not against each other. Now, maybe you're in a relationship where you feel like you're alone or you're against one another, and that is often revealing some core issues that disagreements reveal. So we're kind of getting to the assumption again that this is a healthy, loving relationship, and in those healthy, loving relationships, you can say, we're on the same team. We're in this together. There's a common goal. There's a common mission. And with those that we love the most, we're choosing to do life together. There's times now where Meredith and I disagree in certain situations on how we're going to discipline our children or a decision that we're going to make attached to silly things like dinner or a vacation or something. The way we address those is way different the more years that we're married now being married for over 20 years. It's amazing, you know, with every passing year, she gets more and more grateful that she's married to me. Every morning, it's like she wakes up and she's like, another day, another day I get to be married to you. I say, yes, hark, you're welcome, Meredith. Awaken, you are my wife. I'll go on with the absurdity. I don't know what my problem is. Um, I did have a procedure done to my jaw and some dental work. So maybe I'm just highly medicated. And so this is going to be fun. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the fact is when you choose to do life together, you can find common ground. So maybe I disagree with the way a situation is being dealt with in the raising of our children. It becomes a conversation. Listen, Meredith, we're in this together. We're on the same team so we can talk that out. And the same is true the other way. You know, I'll deal with something. She's like, listen, I thought we said this. Right. Why? Because we're doing life together. We're on the same team so we can disagree. We disagree in loving relationships with those we love the most. It's easy when our relationship is not on the line. Think about that for a second. 
Like for me to disagree with Meredith or for me to disagree with one of my children, they're not concerned that this is going to be the end of our loving relationships. And so because of that, because they're secure in the fact that we've committed to do life together, there's this freedom to disagree in constructive ways, to speak the truth in love. So there's this premise that takes place in healthy relationships. The truth is that we need disagreement, right? We need disagreement in order to find blind spots. If I had the expectation, and I joked a little bit, and I'll joke again probably, about you know Meredith just always having to agree with me, or me always having to agree with Meredith, or like nobody wins in that situation, right? We need a disagreement in order to see blind spots in our own lives. We need people that are willing to tell us the truth in love. In fact, the more truth tellers that we have in our lives, the better off we are. We resist that though, right? Because we don't like that. We actually gravitate towards people that tell us what we want to hear. And those are actually unhealthy relationships. And in some cases, those are unhealthy marriages. The idea that we just gravitate towards, okay, just tell me what you want me to say, and then I'll tell you that's the truth. <laughs> because I don't want to I want to avoid conflict. I don't want to upset you. I just want things to be calm. But no one wins in that environment. There are very few people that we allow to challenge us, if we're honest. I mean, really, really disagree with us at the core of who we are. And they have permission, those few people. Maybe in your life you have one person or a couple, but it's typically a smaller group of people that you allow to speak the truth and to challenge you. These people or person is considered family, right? Or in some cases, they're not actually related. They're just like family. Or we say like they're closer than a brother. Or they're closer than a sister. Because we kind of let them in. They speak the truth to us. We hear the hard stuff from them. Mark shows us how Jesus defines family in this morning's text. And I think it's a worthwhile dive to see what it is that Jesus actually defines family as. In fact, um, last week we ended the text and I, I didn't really dig into it very much because it's actually beginning the conversation today. We ended with verse 21. Verse 21 sees his family, Jesus' family, actually coming after him because they think he's losing it. They, they actually think he's out of his mind. And so verse 21 actually uh, talks about his family coming to get Jesus and concerned about his mental state because of who he's claiming to be. So I want to ask you, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think? Do you think he's losing it? I mean, do you think he can't possibly be who he says he is? Are you a skeptic this morning? One that's not so sure that Jesus really was the son of God or is the son of God. What do you think about Jesus? I want to read a quote to you of uh, C.S. Lewis. He, his, these words were written actually in um, The Case for Christianity the case for Christianity. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, a famous theologian and author. He says this, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, Jesus Christ. Here's what people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And then C.S. Lewis goes on. I'm sure we've heard some of that. Maybe we've even communicated that before. This is what he says. He says, that is one thing we must not say. 
a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, <laughs> or, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. It's great. It's a great paragraph that causes us to really consider who is this Jesus? What is it that we really believe? You see, you can say that, uh, that, that maybe you are a Christ follower, that he is the son of God, but are you living a life that's disrupted by that truth? Living a life that identifies Jesus as Lord is a life that is disrupted in wonderful ways can't just check the box of Christianity and then just move through life unfazed. No. Identifying yourself as a Christ follower never was nor is intended to be a simple cultural label, but rather an identity that connects you as family. Of course, Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind when we look at verse 21. So let's take a look as we continue on to verse 22, and that's where our text begins this morning. Verse 22 says this, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Hmm. So we see something interesting here. Jesus was so disrupting their normal that scribes come from Jerusalem they actually travel from Jerusalem to where he's located to see what the big deal is. They want to see Jesus firsthand. And their conclusion? He's the prince of demons. <laughs> this guy's casting out devils because he is the prince of devils. It sounds absurd, right? I mean, it sounds absurd that a group of people would travel into this community and be like, hey, listen, I've heard a lot about these healings that he's doing. I hear about people that he's setting free from demonic possession. He healed a man's withered hand in synagogue. Is this true? Yeah, see for yourself. And they sit there and they watch all of these things happen and they go, I got it, Bob. I know the answer. You see what's happening here, don't you? No, what? <laughs> he's the prince of demons. That dude right there's Beelzebub. Yeah, he just casts him out. That's why, because he's in charge of them. He's the leader of demons. That's how he can cast them out. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But here's the thing. Jesus can't be ignored. They need and we need to deal with the reality of who Jesus is. What these scribes have done is basically created an apologetic or almost a theology of sorts. Because they want to explain Jesus away. They just, they just want to make sense of what he does. They can't deny the fact that he's casting out demons. They can't deny what it is that he's doing. And so they just kind of put him in a box. And they say, I know what it is. It's easier to define what it is that you kind of understand 
than to deal with the disruptive truth of the gospel. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Listen, it's easier to justify our actions and the way we want to live our lives than to deal with the disruptive truth of the gospel. Let me say that again, because I think it's maybe more profound than we realize at face value. We do it more often than maybe we want to admit. It is easier to justify our actions and the way we want to live our lives than to deal with the disruptive truth of the gospel. Verses 22 through 26, uh, 23 through 26, Jesus basically just dismantles their logic, like basically tears it apart. It makes no sense. Why in the world would the the prince of demons cast out demons? It, it makes absolutely no sense. He just kind of unravels their poor logic. But then in verse 27, Jesus clarifies what he actually is doing by using their illustration against them a little bit. Let's read that. Verse 27, Jesus says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying something about himself, and he's saying something about Satan, the one that they're claiming he is. Jesus is clarifying that the power of the kingdom of God is invading Satan's domain. Jesus is binding the strong man. That's who Jesus is in that illustration. He's the one coming into the strong man's house and binding him. Jesus is saying, I am stronger than the powers that be in this world and the principalities. I am coming in to the strong man's domain. And in order for me to have authority in his home, I'm binding him first and I'm casting out the demons so I can take back what is mine. You see, Jesus is proclaiming God's authority and he further clarifies it in the following verses. Let's read together verses 28 through 30. He says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he is an unclean spirit. Okay, for a little context here. Typically in that day, uh, rabbis, which is just a fancy way of saying teachers. So teachers of that day would quote other teachers. They would quote other rabbis to support their point of view. But Jesus starts this statement in a way that is literally unheard of at the time. And in fact, it might be lost on some of us as we read it in face value if we don't understand what's happening. He says this, he starts off verse 28 with, truly, I say to you, truly, I say to you, what Jesus is doing in that moment is that he speaks with the authority as the source of what he's saying. He's not quoting another teacher. He's not pointing to the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, under my authority, I am saying to you that all sins will be forgiven. This is a huge statement. It's a huge statement about his authority, especially since he's just clarified that he is the stronger person to walk into the strong man's house to bind him. So basically Jesus is saying, I am stronger than the devil of hell who is controlling this earth and I am binding him up. In fact, let me tell you, all sins can be forgiven. Now, 
some people really get hung up on verse 29. Verse 29 that says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Some people are like really hung up on that. They really get hung up on that verse, and or at least I did when I was younger. I mean, when I was younger and I heard that for the first time, I was like, oh no, I did that. I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm going to go to hell. I did the one sin that will never be forgiven. I'm doomed, right? I remember having that fear. And then I remember thinking, okay, I don't think that I did it before because now I'm pretty sure I definitely did it. This time I definitely can't be forgiven. It's like this cycle that we go into. And so I want to take a sidebar just for a moment to explain what this text means. Here's the deal. Verse 30, Mark actually explains the context. Okay, so verse 30, he actually says, for they were saying, so he's like, let me just make this clear. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So he is explaining the context. Jesus isn't making a threat. I used to read this text as if Jesus was making a threat. Like, listen, all things can be forgiven, but, but that one, don't you, bla- don't you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, straight to hell, you know, as if Jesus functions in this threatening nature. He's not doing that. Instead, he's rather logical, right? He's stating the obvious. Let's follow the logic. If you assign evil to the Savior, then you are running from him, not running to him. And so you, in doing so, reject forgiveness. Jesus isn't talking about some cryptic sin that if you accidentally commit, you're now, you know, no longer able to be forgiven. He's saying in a very logical, common sense way, listen, if you're going to run from me, then you have to realize that you, you are rejecting your capacity for forgiveness. It's a statement of the obvious. If you're, actively, if you're actively rejecting your only hope, then you have no hope. Then you have no hope. Here's the easiest way to think of it. A lot of theologians have said this. Some of my professors in college said it. I'm not sure who should even get the credit, but they basically say this. If you're worried that you committed the unpardonable sin, then you didn't. Then you didn't. If you care, then you're in relationship with God. You have a conviction that's present in your heart and mind. So, sidebar over, all right? Let's get back to what it is that Jesus is saying. We see Jesus' family one more time coming for him again. And people tell Jesus, they say, hey, uh, Jesus, just so you know, your family's outside. They're, they're here to, to get you again. They're really concerned about you. <laughs> and Jesus responds, verses 33 through 35, he says this, and he answered them, Jesus, who are my mother and brothers? <laughs> that had to be so confusing to them. They'd be like, um, like they're right there. Like, I know them. They're the ones waiting for you. Why are you asking? <laughs> but verse 34 says, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Hmm. These family accounts, when they take place, they actually validate the authenticity of the gospel, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people. 
the reason why they validate is because what you may not realize is that uh, Jesus' brothers actually go on to be predominant leaders in the early church and uh, have tremendous influence in the early church. They actually accept him as the son of God. Uh, the, the evidence of him being the son of God is irrefutable, and they commit their lives to follow him. It's incredible. The transformation from thinking he's insane to realizing, oh my gosh, he is God. He is God. And they give their life to him. So then why in the world, in a culture that is so sensitive to honoring your family and to not embarrassing church leaders, like, wait a second, it says right here in Mark that you thought your brother was insane. Is that true? Well, there's only one reason you record that. Because it happened. Because it happened. There's no other reason why you would record that unless it's just simply what took place. So here's the deal. In this context, his family's waiting outside. They're at the front end of their spiritual journey, their spiritual awakening. They've already thought him to be insane, and now they're coming out of concern for him. And as they're waiting outside, people are telling him that they're waiting for him, and he responds in this way. And it would be a shocking response. It would be disruptive in a family-oriented society. But make no mistake, Jesus is not diminishing his family. He's not diminishing his relationship with them. He's, in fact, elevating the fact that he is establishing a new society where family is not defined by ethnicity and value is not determined by gender or socioeconomic status. Jesus is disrupting their preconceived ideas of what the family unit is. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm starting a new family, a family of truth tellers, a family that will do life together, not because they're perfect, but because they know that they aren't. And so they link arms and choose to do life together. They do the will of my father. This is amazing. It's absolutely incredible. It's earth shattering, but he doesn't stop there. You see, then Jesus would go on to die a death that they deserve. He'd lay his life down. He'd hang on a cross and die. He'd rise from the dead and he would have victory over sin and death. Why? On their behalf and on our behalf so that our sin would not keep us away from relationship with God. As a result of Jesus doing that, he provides opportunity for us to be part of the family of God. We finally have opportunity to be children of the living God because Jesus lays down his life. Verse 35 is huge in context. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The reason why this is huge, I mean, it's huge for us, sure, absolutely, as I just proclaimed, but it has implications in context because there's a group of people that are gathered together listening to him. And this group of people are a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews that have decided to follow Jesus are considered heretics. They're turning their back on their history, on the idea of 
who it is that their family believes the Messiah will be, what the Messiah will look like, and what that will ultimately bring about in the defeat of Rome and and other preconceived ideas. And so Jewish people are saying, I'm going to follow Jesus at the expense of everything. So you've got that. The other side of the room are Gentiles. The Gentiles are following Jesus, but they've turned their back on family little G gods. They're they're turning their back on tradition. They're joining this Jewish subculture. It makes no sense to the Gentiles of the day. Why would you follow this rabbi? That's something that Jewish people do. So what we have is we have two different groups of people that are in the same boat. They're rejected by their families. They've risked everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus, in a very practical way, is saying, you are part of a larger family. You're part of something greater than yourself. You are not alone. You may disagree, but you are united by a common love and mission. See beyond your disagreements, see beyond the issues and the tensions of this day. And we'll see it come to boiling points in the early church. There were actual racist realities that took place in the early church where, where Peter's actually called on the carpet by Paul and Paul tells him, live your life in line with the gospel because he's showing preferential treatment to Jewish people over the Gentiles. He calls them on the carpet. And so it's amazing how Jesus is setting this foundation to say, listen, I didn't create you so that you would be defined by your differences. I didn't create you so that disagreement would, would cause a wedge in your love relationships. No, you are part of a larger family, a family that I am creating, a family that I will ultimately pay the price so that you can be known as children of the living God, so that your disagreements wouldn't define you. But in fact, as you disagree, you would find one thing in common, and that's a deep love for God and a purpose found in his mission. So I ask you this morning, are you leaning into that type of community? Are you known for what you're against or are you known for what you're for? Man, I think, I think big C church misses it often. They spend so much time, whether it be in social media or in other avenues, just talking about what they're against. But what are we for? What is it that we're for? Are we living on mission? Are we in rich community doing life together? Are we focusing on what we disagree on? We say every week that the text requires something of us, and this week is no different. I want to ask you this question as we consider the implication in our lives. The question is this, how will I deepen my gospel-centered community? How will I deepen my gospel-centered community? Because If we see that community is what God created for us to be a family and doing life together, how do we deepen that? How do we allow truth tellers, gospel-centered truth tellers, to speak the truth in love to us? Instead of being so focused on what we want, how we define God should function, what it is that we think Jesus is against rather than what Jesus is for, we allow people that we love and that we believe love us to speak the gospel truth to us. It only happens when we intentionally deepen the gospel-centered community that we're a part of. So for you, 
the application might look like this. The way you deepen your gospel-centered community is to simply join a gospel-centered community. That means making a decision to ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. If that's you this morning or wherever you might find yourself, it's as simple as praying a prayer. It can be something like this. It doesn't have to be these words, but something along the lines of acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner and that Jesus died a death that you deserved, that you'd ask him to forgive you of your sins, to come and be the Lord and leader of your life. That's how that relationship starts. That's how you join this community, this gospel-centered community. If you've made that decision and you're part of uh, the live broadcast right now, um, you can click on a link that says request prayer and you'll go into a private chat with a host. And we hope that you choose to do that so we can talk to you about next steps and how to get deeper connected in this community. If you're listening to this later, you can go to our next steps page on our website and figure out next steps that you can take as you deepen this community, as you deepen your part in this community. If you're with us this morning or after, and you've already crossed that line of faith and you're a part of this gospel-centered community, I want to encourage you, what does it look like to deepen that? Are you allowing truth-tellers to speak truth into your life? Maybe it's time to be discipled one-on-one, to sign up on the website and say, okay, I need to create an environment where more truth-tellers can speak truth to me. Maybe it means joining a circle the next cycle, I don't know what it means in particular, but I want to challenge you to wrestle with the application and what it looks like to deepen your gospel-centered community. If you've already connected fully in all the outlets that you know possible and you've crossed the line of faith and you're growing spiritually, for you, the text still requires something of you. We say that all the time. You never outpace what it is that the Word of God has to speak to your heart and life. And so to you, maybe it looks like welcoming people to join this community. Maybe it means being missional in your perspective. To be so transformed by the truth of the gospel and so disrupted in the way you live your life that you are the actual hands and feet of Jesus, that you're reaching out to the broken and you're speaking truth in love. Are you on mission? Are you on mission this morning? I want to challenge you to consider and pray about that. In fact, let's all pray together right now. Heavenly Father, We declare ourselves available. We pray that we would hear your voice, Lord, that as we grow with anticipation and excitement, the reality that we're a part of a family that's greater than our platonic one, and that we have the opportunity to do greater things and to speak uh, truth to ourselves and to those we care about. Father, we pray that you would just do a work in us that we could deepen the rich community that you intended for us to be a part of and that we would risk doing life together for your glory and our joy. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. We're gonna continue in the series next week, Disrupted. You're not gonna wanna miss it as we continue in a journey and begin Mark chapter four next week. We'll see you then. Hi, I'm Meredith. Thanks for gathering with us this morning. We want to now invite you to join us on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond and worship through song. There are many ways to worship, not just singing, and we encourage you to spend time applying the text this week as a way to worship. 
Our prayer is that during this disrupted series, you'll be available for the Holy Spirit to disrupt your routines and even thought patterns and to experience growth in unique ways. In the meantime, we're excited to sing together if you're with us live. If you're watching or listening to the message later, you can find the songs we're about to sing on Spotify, search Centerway Church, and look for our new disrupted playlist. For those gathered on the online platform, we'll see you live on Facebook or Instagram in a couple of minutes.